Hey, everybody, this is Joshua Brown. Thank you for listening to the Dream Church podcast. Before we get into this week's message, I wanted to let you know that I've just released a commentary on the book of Luke, chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 40, which is the Christmas story, and it's called A Light Has Dawned. And the reason that I did this is because I've been studying Scripture and teaching Scripture for years now, and the thing that I've noticed is that every English commentary, with the exception of a couple, is very Western um, agenda slanted. And of course, no matter who's doing a commentary, there's going to be agendas at play. This is, is just because we're, we're humans, that we, we uh, commentate and we translate based on what we know and what we feel is right. So that's not necessarily an issue. The issue is, is the Bible is an Eastern book. And the other issue is, is that um, in the West, particularly in America, there's a lot of places where we have greatly strayed from the doctrine and the orthodoxy and the understanding, particularly of the Incarnation and the Trinity, that the early church and the early church fathers and people like St. Athanasius and others held. And so what I wanted to do was give us another viewpoint, another pair of glasses, if you will, to see this story in a way that maybe we've never seen it before, but is very orthodox according to the early church fathers and standard. So that's what this commentary is. And so if you want to pick it up, it's available today worldwide, no matter where you're listening, on Amazon.com. Or if you're in other countries, it's whatever the Amazon link is in your particular country. But it's available worldwide, paperback. It's only $9.99 there. And you can pick that up. It's 75 pages total. So it's a really quick, easy you know, commentary to get a hold of, but it goes really deep. I talk about a lot of the Greek meanings. I talk a lot about the linguistic styling that Luke uses. Um, anyway, if you want to pick that up, it's available on Amazon, or you can go to joshuabrown.org, and you can get all the links there. So with that said, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for your continued support of what the Lord is doing at Dream Church. Now, let's get into this week's message. I'm just going to read some stuff, but I'm going, to, I'm going to teach a little bit different today. So I am, I've kind of been in a, a story-type mode. Every time it gets cold outside, I feel like I need to read something that's fiction. So um, this isn't fiction, but I've kind of been in that mode. So I'm not going to read necessarily what I normally do, which is kind of a, a you know, breaking down something really big. I'm going to kind of tell a story. And so I've tried to get in the mind of what happened when Adam and Eve, uh, quote-unquote, we call it fail, fall, the fall. And so I'm just going to read this. And I want us to get this in our heads, and I want you to like kind of picture this and think through this, and then we're going to find our way to Romans 5 after this. So um, anyway, take this for a minute. Imagine for a moment the air around Adam and Eve after they, in Genesis 3, acted upon the idea that if they did something, they would be something. This is what the devil comes in, you know, slithers in, and... Uh, we have a talking snake. Uh, David Foreman has a brilliant book on uh, this, which is awesome. It turns the whole story on its head. It's brilliant if you want to check that out. I think it's called The Beast That Crouches at the Door. Um, so anyway, but uh, I want you to picture this. Enemy comes in and says, "If you, the Lord doesn't really want you to stay away from that tree. He knows if you eat it, then you'll be like him. They were already like God. So they agreed that if they do something, they're going to be something that, oh, by the way, they actually already were. So there had to be, after that, there had to be a heaviness, maybe even the stench 
of a half-eaten fruit that is now rotting on the ground where, by the way, nothing had probably ever rotted before. Like, I want you to think about this. In the garden, did fruit rot? Maybe. But I would, I mean, there's a really good argument that probably not. So they take a bite of this fruit. We don't know it's an apple. We just kind of say it's an apple. But they take a bite of this fruit, and they realize what they've done. And you've kind of like, imagine, imagine this dramatically. Take a bite of fruit, and they're like, oh, my goodness. And it like drops to the ground. Well, you know apples, like after, after like, what, 10, 15 minutes, they start to turn brown and like, you know, just start to smell and stuff like that. So I just want you to picture this, okay? There had to be a heaviness maybe a stench of this rotten fruit they've never experienced before. With eyes wide open, they see things that they've never seen, awful things. Maybe a fly falling dead around their rotten fruit. Maybe a bee stings them where it had never stung them before. Maybe a mosquito bites their ankles. Rivalry has entered into their environment. The previously herbivore lion is gazing upon the lamb with a striking and drooling taste in his mouth. That had never happened before. For Adam and Eve, new senses awaken, but it's not smell or touch. Senses like desire and pride and anger and primarily fear. They are afraid. They are, in every sense of the word, lost. Then they hear the sound of footsteps that they've known their whole lives. One, two, three, four, five, six. Father, Son, Spirit, knowing what has happened, come to find their image bearers to, I believe, mend their wounds of disobedience. But Adam and Eve think differently now. Before their mistake, they simply enjoyed communion and fellowship with God. They gave no thought to their behavior because they had no knowledge of good and evil. They saw everything through the love and identity that they were given when they first opened their eyes and locked gaze with Yahweh in his illuminescent light. Think about this, Adam and Eve, the first thing that they see when they are raised up or put together out of a rib, they open their eyes and the first thing they look into is the eyes of Abba. Think about this. Before, the fall, before their mistake, they just enjoyed the communion and they give no thought to anything else. Every other time, that Yahweh walked with Adam and Eve, it made complete sense. It was easy. There was no barriers. This is what is meant to be, they would think. But now, a new thought. With a newly chaotic and distorted mindset, they processed the sound of God a new way. Disappointment. So they hide. They hide because they have in just moments, forgotten completely who they really are. And in forgetting who they are, they are now burdened with an anxiety to remember who they are, and they believe the way to remember who they are is to remake who they are by doing better. Doing is why they are hiding 
Therefore, doing is, in their minds, the way out of hiding. Then they hear the sound. Where are you? Not, I can't find you, but why are you hiding? This is what God says. When God shows up, Father, Son, Spirit, they show up in the garden after the fall, and the scripture says in Genesis 3, when God says, where are you? I've taught this before. He's not saying like, oh, my Lord, I've lost you. Where are you? That's not what he said. He's saying, essentially, why are you hiding? You're supposed to be here. You know what I'm saying? So, so I, want you, I just want you to hear this. They hear the sound. Where are you? How their hearts at that sound must have been completely pierced. All they wanted in that moment was the approval of God, Papa, Brother, and Breath. And they had eternally, they thought, let them down. And they couldn't change what had been done. Forever, their relationship was severed. So they thought. But there's another perspective at play. It's God's. And I don't know if we've ever explored this perspective. Because Adam and Eve had a newly veiled mindset, their perception is completely off. They have blurry vision. Y'all with me? Y'all good? Okay. Y'all real quiet. I think that's a good thing, hopefully. Adam and Eve had a newly veiled mindset, which meant their perspective, their perception was completely off. They had blurry vision. But God did not show up post bite of the fruit to destroy them for doing wrong. Let me, let me just implore you to think about this. God is God. He knew what was coming. This was not a surprise. Okay? It, is it not evil for God? I'm going to get a lot of flack for this, but I'm just, just, I'm just be real. Is it not evil for God to create mankind knowing that they would disobey and then destroy them to the point of death, the very ones he created knowing they would do the very thing that he would destroy them for? I mean, I just want you, because this is what Western theology thinks. Let me just, can I just share this with y'all? I heard a a debate recently from a good reformed brother, and um, and his take, and this is the majority of reformed belief, is that God, in his sovereignty, God purposely caused things like the Holocaust, slavery, all that stuff they believe was from God so that God could come around on the backside and fix it. And in fixing it, they would see, oh, praise God, God fixed this really bad situation that, oh, by the way, God caused. Now, I want you to tell me something. I want you to tell me something, all right? Is that not, it's definitely not love, evil, because somebody asked, somebody asked this guy when I was listening to this, because this, like I said, this is what I do for fun. I listen to debates. But, and somebody asked this guy, they said, well, what about God cannot sin? <laughs> God cannot be tempted with sin. And the guy said, oh, it's just a mystery. We'll never know until we're with God. No, 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 no. You can't do that. That's not, that's not legal. So, um, th- but this is what we think. We believe that God knew Adam and Eve, because he did, were going to disobey, created them anyway, But then, even though he knew they would disobey, he still created them, and he came around 
and punish the living daylights out of them as if he had no clue they were going to disobey. Right? That doesn't even make sense. We're talking about God. We're not talking about Hitler. We're talking about God, who John calls his love. So, this, this is kind of, I mean, this is what we think. This is the story we've believed and we've built doctrine on. We may not have known it, but this is the story we believe. But it's not true. It's only true, and I want you to hear this. It's only true if you see things from Adam's perspective, which we do. That story I just told you is only true if you see it from Adam's perspective. Because Adam and Eve, we know this because they're hiding. Why are they hiding unless they believe they're about to be demolished? Remember what God said, if you eat that fruit, you will die. He did not say, if you eat that fruit, I will kill you. He says, if you eat that fruit, you will die. And they didn't die. So God obviously wasn't talking about a physical death. He was talking about something would die, right? So, which is why the resurrection is so huge. But God shows up and they're hiding because Adam believes because of what I've just done God is about to destroy me or kill me. So he's hiding, right? But if you see things from God's perspective, which, oh, by the way, is unskewed. Adam's perspective is very blurry at this point. God's perspective is completely 2020 vision clear. So, so if anything, we need to be judging this whole story from God's perspective, not Adam's perspective. So if you view it from God's perspective, we see a completely different story altogether. What happens after is God shows up in a newly darkened garden, an obscure, not knowing what or who it is garden, okay? And God is restricting mankind in what he responds with from acting in a way that would hinder his plan from the beginning, which was redemption, Okay, I'm going to try, try my best to get there. <clears throat> Not out of hate, but out of love. He lays out the repercussions of their new understanding. Not of their action, of their understanding. Okay? What they were never designed to attempt to understand, which is good and evil. And he removes them from the garden which contained the other tree so that that state that they were in would not be forever. And then, to make matters even better, he knits clothes for them to cover their nakedness that they, in their darkness, are ashamed of. They were always naked. And God responds to their eyes being open to things they were never designed to have eyes open to by saying, you know what, I'm going to give you clothes, but there's coming a day. There's coming a day where it's not going to be clothes that cover you up and hide you that's going to make you feel better. It's going to be this which reconciles you from before when you took that bite of fruit. But, uh, but if we're not careful, let me, let me say it like this. Veda um, does not, Veda is so good, so she doesn't ever, hardly ever does anything bad. But um, Veda, if she's in our kitchen and she's playing with a knife, a sharp knife, like a butcher's knife, Okay, if she's playing with that knife, we've t obviously she knows she shouldn't be doing that. And me and Jordan walk in and we take the knife from her. She's going to be angry because she was playing with a knife, right? And then me and Jordan say, you know what? 
we're not going to play in the kitchen anymore. We're going to go play in the living room. Because in our minds, if we remove her from the possibility of going back to the thing that would kill her, right, then she's not going to play with knives. So you could look at this from Veda's perspective and say, those parents stink. That was my toy. I was playing with that. That was mine. And they just walked in here and stole it from me. And not only that, they kicked me out of the place I was playing for no reason. Or you could see it from the parents' perspective, our perspective, which says, oh, that makes complete sense. They love her so much, they didn't want her to kill herself with a knife. This is the difference in how we view God starting in Genesis 3. Really, if I could already start in Genesis 1, going all the way through to right now, is we see things through Adam's eyes, which says, I've got to hide because of what I've done, rather than God's eyes, which say, I'm showing up not to destroy you. I'm showing up so that you can one day be redeemed. He removes them from the other tree so that that state would not be forever. Very important. The essence of what takes place in that garden is man, through the tree of knowledge, was now given the capability to judge good and evil. I need you to hang with me for this part. He was now given the ability, and when I say he, I mean humanity, as you know, uh, was given the ability the capability to judge good and evil, which is only valid as it relates to works. Y'all good? Y'all with me? The only reason a knowledge of good and evil would be worth anything is if you're judging actions as good or evil, right? But if everybody's made in the image of God, the image is good. So you're not judging identity through a knowledge of good and evil. You're judging actions through a knowledge of good and evil, right? Therefore, at its core, what happened in the garden is man taking salvation into his own hands by works. The thought pattern changed. This is huge. The thought pattern changed from I am, therefore I do, to I do, therefore I am. Okay, one more time. In the garden, this new knowledge, good and evil, What changed is they went from an I am, therefore I do mentality to I do and therefore I am mentality. But God never changed. God never changed. The reason that they were never supposed to agree with that thinking is because we are not God. We reflect God. Let me go a little deeper. Only God can judge works correctly, which is simply a fruit of identity. We, as we have seen, have zero capability to judge works correctly. Prove it. The last time you did something you shouldn't do, did you feel like you were still intact from an identity standpoint, or did you feel like your identity was now hindered? You felt like your identity was broken because of what you've done, right? Which is proof that we don't see works correctly. And I would argue we cannot see works correctly. We're not God. We reflect God, right? So we were never supposed to take a bite, which, you know, if you want to take that in metaphoric ways, you can't, whatever the case may be. We were never supposed to inherit a knowledge of good and evil. God was supposed to hold the knowledge of good and evil. Let me, let me, just, let me just read this real quick. I saw this, this. You don't have to turn there. 
I saw this this week, and I thought this was really, really interesting. Because I've taught, and it is absolutely true, that um, Adam and Eve were in the image of God, but they believed that if they eat this, they'll be in the image of God. Really? What's interesting is, here's how God responds in the Trinity. This is what God says to each other, okay? The Lord God said to Father, Son, and Spirit, the man has now become like one of us. That's interesting. I thought they were like you, right? But he says, the man has now become like one of us. Now, here's the key phrase, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Why? Because there was going to come a day when this broken down identity based on a knowledge of good and evil that we were never supposed to have was going to be put to death on the cross. He was going to become the knowledge of good and evil so that us, you and I, could live in a complete identity-based life all the rest of our days. So, so God says, the man has now become like one of us. Why? Because now man knows good and evil. God created man in his image from the very beginning, but now there was a new mindset, knowing good and evil. Okay? Only God can judge this correctly. But by the way, or by way of this new foreign agenda for Adam and Eve works, salvation, so they thought, and so we thought, was in their own hands. Are y'all tracking with me? Right? So now that they've received this new understanding of knowledge of good and evil, there's an agenda at play, and the agenda is salvation. I don't, how do I get back good again? Right? The issue here is that God never called them bad, even after. So they believe they're bad, and God never changed them from good. So now they're thinking, how do we get good again when they're actually already good? There's so, there's so, so here's an issue. So there's an agenda at play for Adam and Eve, which is I've got to earn my way back, even though underneath the surface they're already there. They never left, okay? And when that happens, salvation, meaning to get back, freedom from oppression, freedom back into originality, becomes something that they accomplish on their behalf by the works of their hands because they got there by the works of their hands. Y'all good? Okay. So God, in response to this, gave the law of the covenant, and we saw throughout the entire Old Testament, and it was proven to us that we cannot possibly give ourselves salvation. Do you see this? It was, it's almost as if Adam and Eve said, man, we've, we've got to save ourselves. And God said, amazing. If you want to save yourself, let me give you the law that I believe completely would have been effortless. It would have been a way of life had it not been for the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? Here's the law for you to live as you really are. If you think you can do this bad boy on your own, have fun, right? He gave them a covenant and attached to the covenant of being in covenant as one with God. Let me, let me man, let me explain this. I need y'all's brains for a minute, okay? Because this is a big thought. Adam and Eve, let me just say Adam because it'll fit better with Romans 5. Adam represents Eve and everybody else as well. So let me just use Adam. Adam um, 
when he's created, is in covenant with God. Good? Adam's in covenant with God. So Adam's designed to be in covenant with God. His fall did not change the covenant. He's in covenant. So when God gives Israel the covenant or the law or the law of covenant, it's also called, he gives them that because they're in covenant with God, never changed, but they see themselves as way down here. So he gives them the law of the covenant to say, if you think you can do this by your works, this right here is the standard that your identity is actually already at. But I'm going to give you a covenant so that you can prove it to yourselves that your works cannot get you to where, oh, by the way, you already are. Is, I, know that, I know that's a lot. Some of you are going to have to go back and listen to that. But this is, this is what happens. He gives the law so that we're proven, and Paul talks so much about this when he talks about uh, salvation coming by faith so that we wouldn't boast as if we did it on our own, etc. All of this was a setup to the moment that the word becomes flesh. Emmanuel. Kyle's wearing a shirt about it today. The word becomes flesh so that we would see the magnitude of true atonement that was achieved. Let me read this, and I've read this before, but let me just read this from Baxter Kruger. See Baxter Kruger. I'm going to quote Athanasius. Um, no, no, I'm not. Let me just read this last paragraph. Let me just read this last paragraph. I am going to quote Athanasius. The early church father, the early church father, Athanasius, he wrote one of the first, actually the first um, uh, theological writing of the early church around 380. Okay, so this is what Athanasius says. He says, it, it was un, he's talking about the fall, you know, God, the whole thing. It was unworthy of the goodness of God that creatures made by him should be brought to nothing through the deceit wrought upon man by the devil. And it was supremely unfitting that the work of God and mankind should disappear, either through their own negligence or through the deceit of evil spirits. As then the creatures whom he created were on the road to ruin, what then was God being good to do? What was he to do? Was he to let corruption and death have their way with them? In that case... In that case, what was the use of having made them in the beginning at all? Surely it would have been better never to have been created than having been created to be neglected and perish. Okay? And besides, this is all from Athanasius, early church father. Besides that, such indifference to the ruin of his own work, man, mankind, humanity, before his very eyes, would argue not goodness in God, but limitation. As if God couldn't fix it. It was impossible, therefore, that God should leave man to be carried off by his corruption because it would be unfitting and unworthy of God himself. Now let me read this from C. Baxter Kruger, theologian, amazing guy. He's going to be on our podcast in the next couple of weeks. For Athanasius... It is unthinkable that God would turn his back on his creation. 
The work of God in creation flows out of the endless love of Father, Son, and Spirit. If God were suddenly to turn cold towards the human race, such a turn would indicate that coldness, indifference, or neutrality is part of the relationship of the triune God. Or else that God is suddenly acting contrary to the way Father, Son, and Spirit have existed for all eternity. Now, let me read this paragraph because this is what I wanted to read. In Athanasius... The fall of Adam is met by the same God and by the same overflowing love and determination to bless that called forth creation in the first place. The passion of God in creation becomes the fire that sends the Son to save. It is God's dreams for us that are threatened in Adam's plunge. Let me read this one more time, okay? And I love the plural use of this. Father, Son, Spirit. It is God's dreams for us that are threatened in Adam's plunge. We never saw that, right? It, it was like God was saying, my Lord, they have fallen and I'm bloodthirsty. Somebody got to pay. No, no, no. That, it wasn't God's bloodthirst that was threatened. It wasn't God's bloodthirst that was awakened. It was God's dreams for humanity that was threatened by the plunge. Jesus came to redeem God's dreams over us, not to pay off a bloodthirsty father. Uh, that just felt good to say. For Jonathan Edwards, on the other hand, as one of the leaders of the, the good American uh, Reformed Church, for Edwards... On the other hand, the fall of Adam is met by cold justice, so cold, so cold, that it is heartlessly unmoved by the destruction of humanity. The God of Edwards' sermons, sinners in the hands of an angry God, couldn't care less about his own creation. In his heart, indifference and arbitrary as it is, there is no compelling reason to act for the salvation of his creation at all. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Y'all have to learn that in school? Crazy. If I, here's the thing. If we've got to learn sinners in the hands of an angry God at school, you better make sure we're learning Athanasius at the same time. Right? Because we've told all of our kids that we're all sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's not even true. I mean, you might be talking about Muslims. You might be talking about Judy. You're sure not talking about Christianity. Because none of us are sinners in the hands of an angry God because God's not angry. Right? And if I could help you out, no, 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 no. I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to stop right there. We'll get there one day, okay? <laughs> we'll get there one day. But you, you just need to be real careful calling somebody a sinner when you're looking through that. That's all I'm going to say right there. Okay, because he became sin. So either he didn't accomplish it, either the cross is a lie, or you're not a sinner. you got to pick. Anyway, so for, for Jonathan, if sinners in the hands of an angry God is absolutely true, then Jesus should have never come. He should have let us go into oblivion because God didn't give a crud about us in the first place. Who, why would God save something he doesn't care about? In fact, why would he save something that makes him angry? He wouldn't. And, and if you could take a step further, knowing that that would happen, because predestination and you know five points and all that stuff is for them legit. If that's the case, why did God create people in the first place, knowing that that would happen, knowing that he would have his bloodthirst angered, knowing he'd have to punish his own son to get his bloodthirst paid off? Why would he do that? Or maybe that's not the story. 
Because it's sure not the story of Athanasius who wrote in 300 AD, not 1700 in the Enlightenment period AD. Okay, I'm, I'm just, I'm getting all my 20s out. Okay. In his heart, according to Edwards, indifference and arbitrary, indifferent and arbitrary as it is, there's no compelling reason for him to act. The passionate love that Athanasius sees everywhere, especially in response to the fall, is strangely absent in Edwards. In its place, we have pure anger, right? But for Athanasius, let me jump ahead. Let me, let me jump ahead, okay? Assurance is not a peripheral luxury. It is the heart and soul of Christian living. Without assurance, we will never experience freedom from our entrenched self-centeredness, freedom to go out of ourselves and give ourselves to others. Without assurance, we will never experience freedom to know and to be known. And I'm going to stop right there. So, there, there is a, a major difference between the God that we've grown up thinking was there and the God that is actually there. The God that is ready to punish us for our works and the God that's ready to punish anything that stands in between his dreams and who we really are. Drastic difference. Like I've said for weeks, if God's coming to punish me for my works, my identity is entangled with my works, therefore God is coming to punish me. If God's dreams and love for me are so high that he refuses to let any of that junk get in the way of it, then when God is aiming at me, he's not aiming at me. He's actually aiming at the stuff that's keeping me from being me. And in that, we sing, clean my hands, purify my life. I want to burn from you. Take my life as a sacrifice. I want to be tried by fire. And we welcome it. But if it's our identity that he's aiming at, we sing I want to be tried by fire in a very timid way if we ever sing it and knowing halfway what we're talking about. Okay. So Jesus came to the offspring of Adam, aged and fermented like a fine wine for centuries. And in our depths, he said, this is not who you are. And God is not who you think he is. All these years, you thought he wanted your best effort and all he really wanted was you. But you still don't get it. Just as one act led to this moment, Jesus says, incarnation, I will act to free you from the first. I will submit to your utter rejection, but that very rejection is actually going to set you free. Because where sin increases, I've brought grace to increase all the more. God with us is simultaneously a revelation. I said this earlier. Simultaneously a revelation of us with God. God with us means us with God. Let me read one more thing, and I promise I'm going to Romans 5. Are y'all good? It's only 11, 18. And I after this, I don't have much. So um, actually, this is my last page of notes. So the rest is just going to be flying by the seat of our pants. Um, Karl Barth, uh, who's become one of my favorite guys of all time, uh, other than Jesus. Um, let, me just, let me just read this, okay? <clears throat> the, it's just one sentence. No, let me read back. The answer... How is it to include within God with us, we, he says, with God, or us with God? And if it does not include that, how can it really be understood as God with us? The answer is that we ourselves are directly summoned 
that we are lifted up, that we are awakened to our truest being as life and act, that we are set in motion by the fact that in one man, God has himself has himself made himself our peacemaker and the giver and the gift of our salvation. By it, we are made free for him. By it, we are put in place which comes to us where our salvation, our real salvation, can come to us from him. Okay? Now, last part. This is what I want to read. This one thing, Christ becoming man, the cross, the passion, all of it, okay? This one thing does not mean the extinguishing of our humanity, but the establishment of our humanity. Uh, Is that not bad to the ever-loving bone? Right? Karl Barth, theologian. He says, the cross was not God coming to destroy or distinguish our humanity and start over. It was him coming to establish the humanity that's always been there but has been veiled since Genesis 3. Awesome. Let me go to Romans 5. Romans 5. Romans 5. And I want to read this. Now that I've said all this, I want you to hear what Paul is saying here. And then I want to talk about salvation. Completely left field, but, but, uh, but you'll make sense of it when we get there. All right, Romans 5. Romans 5. I'm just read the whole, the whole thing because it's only a couple verses. All right. Therefore, note, let me start at 12. Let me start at 12. Skip ahead from the rabbits. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin... In this way, okay? Now, let me help you with Greek. So, Paul is about to... There's actually about uh, three chiasms in this passage. And so, there's one that's between uh, verses 12 through 21. There's another one that's in between uh, Romans 5 through 8. There's a chiasm. And a chiasm in Hebrew is a way of writing. So, the Hebrew language is real simple. And, um, and I guess a little more uh, difficult than English. But anyway, it was a simple language. It was a short letter language. There wasn't as many letters. And so because of that, when you would write in an Eastern Jewish Hebraic per, uh, perspective, you would write in what I call layered writing. Okay, So you would write things, and as you're writing this, you're adding layer upon layer upon layer of meaning into the text. So instead of writing 85 pages of text with 85 different singular meanings, you're writing one page of text with 85 different meanings. You see what I'm saying? And so the, one of the ways that we can, one of the, the linguistic techniques that writers would have used, which Paul being a Pharisee among Pharisees, a Jew among Jews, you know, the whole thing, would have been very familiar with this, is they would use something called a chiasm. And a chiasm is where you start uh, a section of writing and end a section of writing with the same idea, and then another section in the beginning, another section with the same idea, and you, they meet in the middle, and where it meets in the middle, you find the main idea that the author is talking about. Okay, so Paul puts tons of these in here. But, but, let me read this. In the Greek, the understanding of that phrase, in this way, or, or, 
when he says, uh, just as, so also, all the more, when he uses those languages, all the more, so also, etc. What it is in Greek, and even in English, really, but what it is, is Paul connecting two ideas that are similar in substance. Connected in substance, but the one on the other end with the all the more or, um, you know, for example. So also, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. He uses that language over and over and over as I'm about to read. And what he's saying is, is the one after that and the one before that are connected in their substance, but the one that follows is greater. Y'all with me? Okay, so let me start again. Verse 12, just at, let me start at verse 1, actually. I'm going too fast. I'm going too fast. I'm getting excited. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Unbelievable. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but also the glory of our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because of God's love that has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now check out verse 6. You see, at just the right time, at just the right time, and I taught this last week, go back and listen to it if you missed it. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And Paul says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sin, hamartea, from the word ha, without, negative, and meros, which is form or portion, without form. So to be in sin is not to be looking at stuff you shouldn't be looking at. It's to lose your form, which produces you looking at stuff you shouldn't look at. Right? Amen. Okay. So while we were still completely formless, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood... How much more, there it is, we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved? Now, I'm going to change this. If you're reading the NIV, I'm going to change this to what it should be. For God's wrath through him, or by God's wrath through him, not from God's wrath through him. Let me just help you out. That's part of the little translators kind of adding a little thing in there to make you believe something's there. It's not. All right. So if... While we were God's enemies, and as I said last week, if you go to Colossians 1, Paul expounds upon what he's talking about here, which he says in Colossians 1, when you were enemies of God in your mind, okay? So Paul says, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, there it is again, having been reconciled, Shall we be saved through his life? Okay? Not saved for heaven or hell. That's going to be a great day one day. But when he talks about saved, he means now, present, current. Okay? 
Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through through whom we have now received reconciliation. I, I love, that's my favorite word right now. Verse 12, therefore, just as sin entered the world through the one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sin, okay, to be sure sin was in the world before the law was given. And this is Paul kind of talking about what I explained earlier in basically the same way. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. That is a major verse, a massive verse that we skip over. He says, Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Not the one to come is a pattern of Adam. Adam is a pattern of the one to come. Major difference. Why is this so huge? Adam, I taught this last week, Adam was the prophetic. Adam was the prophetic family head that gave us a type and shadow of the true family head that would be in Jesus Christ. So, so Adam was just a shadow of Christ. The purpose of Adam's relationship to humanity was not to stand against God's relationship to humanity. The purpose of Adam's relationship to humanity was to be the type and shadow for humanity so that when Christ showed up, they could say, we know exactly how this is supposed to work because we've seen how it worked in Adam. That's huge. See, y'all, that's huge. Okay? We, we, we have viewed Christ and Adam at odds. Right? They're not. Adam is a type, and I've even probably implied that maybe at some point. But Adam and Christ are not at odds. Adam is a type and shadow of Christ. Right? And if there was any at odds, it was the sin that came in between Adam and Christ. But again, Adam was not, Christ was not aiming at Adam. He was aiming at the thing that stood in between Adam and everybody else and him. Okay? So, so Adam is a type and shadow of the one to come. Can I, let me, can I break something down real fast for y'all? That's going to help y'all a lot. Thank you. If, how far, man, how far do we go with this? If Adam was a type and shadow of Christ, y'all good, right? That means Adam's effect is a type and shadow of Christ's effect. Which means when Paul says, just as sin entered through the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. So what we have right here is a, is a, and this is bringing in the chiasms and all this other stuff that we can break down. We're not going to do today. So you have Adam, and from Adam you have sin, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And from that you have death. And we are connected to the sin and to the death solely because of our relationship to the head of the human race, Adam. That's it. As went the head, 
so went the body. So because you and I come from the head of Adam, that means we, without any choice, without any option on our own, received through Adam sin and death. But that is a type and shadow of what was to come, which is Christ at the head and justification and life. Y'all good? Okay. So we see even Christ ordained that the darkness in Adam would be nothing but a prophetic announcement of what the light would one day do through Christ. As the dark seeped through Adam and seeped through Adam's seed and affected every single person that came from Adam, one day Christ was going to come and all the more justification and life was going to flow through all the seed that came from Christ. And because Christ is the one that Adam's pointing to, and Adam is not the one that Christ is pointing to, when Christ steps in as the one that Adam was nothing but pointing to, he supersedes Adam. Therefore, Adam no longer has a purpose or a say. So when Christ steps in, all of a sudden the justification comes in and covers the sin, and the life comes in and covers the death. And because it supersedes it, the life and the sin and the atom no longer have a say because something has come that is all the more greater. All right. Thank you, Holy Spirit. That's exactly how I wanted to say that. Okay. So so just as sin entered the world through one man, death reigned through sin. Okay. Now, verse 15. But the gift, here it is. He's going even deeper. The gift is not like the trespass. Okay, the trespass is pointing to the gift, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor, even deeper, nor can the gift of God be compared with the results of one man's sin. Why? Because it was just a type and shadow. Okay? The judgment, the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. The Lord, I wish y'all could feel this. This is just, um, I feel my guts just Okay, the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But then the gift stepped in, followed all those same sins, but where there was condemnation, the gift came in and replaced it with justification. Okay, if that wasn't enough, even deeper. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through the one man, through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Amazing news. And Paul says, no, 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 no. We need to go a little bit further. We need to go, there's one step we need to go a little bit deeper. 
just as one trespassed. Do you hear the re- repetitiveness in this? He's just repeating himself over and over and over and over. This is on purpose. Because every time he repeats it, he, he goes a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. He's a type in shadow. He covered the trespass. He covered the condemnation. And in verse 18 and 19, he's about to stab it in the guts. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many, the Greek word pos also means all, okay? The many were made sinners, just like I talked about, right? Our effect, our, our relationship to Adam, our connection to Adam made everyone sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many, pos, all, will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that trespass or sin might increase. The Lord, listen, listen. If, if, if Adam and the effects of Adam are a type and shadow to Christ, right? And Christ is to prove the magnitude of the grace that was brought by Jesus through the incarnation, then there's actually a requirement for our sin and the realization of our sin to increase to prophetically point to the magnitude of the righteousness that would increase all the more. So God gives the law, the covenant, so that we could be awakened to the fact of the magnitude of how far we have become darkened so that when Christ steps in, grace could say, not only am I the magnitude of that, but I am all the more. So the law comes in to be a prophetic announcement even through their sin of the grace and righteousness that was coming through Christ. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Why? So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Christ our Lord. Can you imagine sitting in the audience when this is being read? Most scholars believe that Paul wrote this letter and a woman delivered this to the Romans. And so a, a, a woman, possibly Phoebe, possibly somebody else, but a woman was sitting there. And can you imagine they haven't heard one thing like this and she's reading this to them? What is, what is buzzing in the guts of these people as she's going through reading this? I, I mean, the Greeks were taught through mythology, through Plato, that the whole purpose of life was to be good so that you could float into eternal bliss one day. That's what Plato and the Greek philosophers taught them was the whole purpose of life was to act good and be good and be a good person so that when you die, which is the whole point of life, you get to escape this mortal body and float into what Plato called eternal bliss, and in eternal bliss you'll finally be exactly as you were always supposed to be. Now, there's one problem. That sounds like a lot of Christianity, right? But Paul doesn't say anything about that. Paul's talking about now. Paul's talking about right here and now, right present, right current. He's talking about new creation. He's talking about Jesus who came, not praying a prayer. When you pray, I want you to pray this. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Get us out of here. No. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. 
Paul says, yeah, I'd rather go be with Jesus, but for your sake, I'm gonna be right here. Why for your sake? Because all of y'all have been sold by Plato that the whole goal of life is to forget this place because I'm gonna float away into eternal bliss and I've got to teach you that Christ did something now. So I care about things in my culture that are affecting people around me and brothers and sisters around me because I'm not focusing on where I'm going when I die even though that's going to be great, I'm focusing on the new creation reality that's here now that I'm called to steward, right? This is unbelievable. And so Paul gives this, and he talks about reconciliation. Now, let me remind you this, and I'm almost done. This is what happens when I don't have notes to to keep me in track. When he talks about reconciliation, the the Greek word is uh, kata lasso, okay? Kata meaning down against, okay? So you're going down into the guts of something, but you stand in contrast to it. Kata and then lasso. And I think I misquoted that last week. I think on the, on the recording I went back and I think I said kata. It's kata is the Greek word. So the other part of that word is alasso. And the word alasso means to transform or to exchange. So reconciliation, katalasso, is going down into the guts of something that you stand in contrast to and exchanging what you are with what it is. That's reconciliation. So Christ went into the guts of Adam and his darkness, and there he exchanged the darkness of Adam with light. Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. There was an exchange that took place by way of reconciliation, right? Here's the issue. The problem is, is that we have no issue believing that exchange took place, right? But we have distorted ideas of what it means that that exchange took place. Because Adam and humanity are connected as one. It's a human race, right? That's not a statement about race. That's a statement about identity. It's a body. So it's the human race connected at the head, which is why through one man's trespass, everybody was condemned to death because we're all connected by the one man. Christ gets in the guts of that one man, and he exchanges darkness for light and trespass for justification and condemnation and death for life. And when that exchange takes place, suddenly, like a flowing river, everybody who was a result of the darkness and sin that came from the head now has another head that they're flowing from. So from that head flows justification and life. That is the gospel. That's why when Jesus is on a cross, he's not saying, guess what? Y'all are about to get yours. You thought you were going to kill me. Guess what? I'm going to kill you. No, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't have a clue what's happening right now. I'm in their darkness. Jesus was in the darkness of the ones who had pounded his flesh into wood. And in that darkness, he said, forgive them. They don't know, but it is finished. Uh, This is the gospel. And so we've treated people, and we've treated other people, we've treated people who aren't in this. Okay? And when I say in this, I'm not talking about other, other denominations because Jesus treated the religious people very differently than he treated the people who weren't in church. Right? The religious people need to understand that the gospel that we are pushing at profit and for profit and so that we could have big influencers and so that we could have big megachurch, the gospel that we're pushing for that is not the right gospel, therefore it's heresy. So we're pushing a gospel that everybody is starting to buy into. It's not even the gospel. 
right? And that's, that's not a huge statement, but I guess it is. I don't know. But I don't know where we lost this. But the gospel is something has taken place in Christ that we are now given to steward into all the globe. So I could sit around here and argue why you should or shouldn't get a vaccine, or I could see you as the person who God called righteous and good. Take your pick. What the church has decided is we're going to sit around and argue about whether or not people should wear a mask or get a vaccine. And that's been the church. I saw a pastor going to jail the other day because he told, in Canada, because I guess they have different laws, he told somebody that they shouldn't get the vaccine and the Canadian people said you shouldn't tell people that, so they arrested him. So, and their whole church is just like, well, brother, that is, that is church persecution. It absolutely is. Great, that's persecution. Here's my issue. Why are you in the pulpit not talking about reconciliation and wasting your time talking about whether or not somebody should get a vaccine? <laughs> Salah. You know what I'm saying? If that's what the gospel is, then dear God, we've missed it. I, I'm going to tell you. Here's the, here's the other issue. Here's the other issue. Lord, see here, I'm doing it right now. I'm doing, I'm doing the very thing I tell people not to do. We, we want people to pass, and I'm, I'm absolutely against abortion, so I'm, I'm cool with this. We want people to pass laws to force people to do something. And then we get mad when people force people to do something. And we'll preach about it on stage. Right? Which I'm completely against, by the way, forcing people to do anything. Okay? But I'm also for making sure people have life. That's not a statement on abortion, and that's not a statement on vaccine. My point is, is that we are wasting our time doing something that we're not called to do. I'm not called to be a politician. I'm called to bring in a kingdom that supersedes what the politician's kingdom is in the earth doing. I'm called to bring in a kingdom that so sozos everyone that it doesn't matter what law is passed. That the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. And all of a sudden you have people who are shining a light. There's a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden rather than talking about who's in the White House. Who? Listen, I care. I care. I care. I care. But when it relates to Christ and his kingdom, and if that's what we're going to talk about outside of Christ and his kingdom, we need to get a life. Because this thing is not about who you vote for. This, and sure, that's included. But you better believe if you don't have the light of what Christ came to do in us, it don't matter how many times you put a vote beside an R or a vote beside a D, you're still going to be in the darkness of not knowing who you are. And it does not matter. There's my, there's my rant for today. We just lost 20 people. Bye. Um, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. But um, no, I'm not. You know, but... Um, but this is, this is the legit thing. So let me talk about salvation for a minute because this is, this is where the crux of, of all this. And see, I'm, getting, I'm turning 30, so I'm starting to use words like crux. All right, so, because <clears throat> people will hear this, well, what's the point of salvation? Paul moves from this and he says, because my little sister Isabella uh, said yes to Jesus this week, right? So we're going to get baptized her. It's going to be amazing. Coming up soon. So my whole family, at this point, I don't think I baptized Matt. I don't think I got a baptized mat. Did I? Did I? Oh, at the river. Yeah, I'm, I was thinking of when we were kids. Um, yes, you're exactly right. So uh, but at this point, me or Matt have gotten to baptize our whole family um, or brothers and sisters. So, um, so that's going to be amazing. But when Paul goes in, because you can imagine these people are like, dear God, what do we do now? It, it, this is what the response would have been. If you take Romans 5, if sin increasing... Was a was, I guess, a good thing for them. I'm I'm saying how they would have responded, and it makes grace increase all the more. 
should we just keep sinning? Right? So Paul addresses this and he says, what shall we say then? Shall we keep sinning so that grace may increase? Because where sin increases, grace increases all the more. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can it live any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him and through baptism into death and that in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live in this new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified to him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. That's what salvation is. It's freedom from oppression. Sozo is freedom from oppression, not freedom from the devil. Sure, you get freed from the devil. But the devil was defeated 2,000 years ago. You've been free from the devil. Praise God for the cross. Stop worrying about the devil. My Lord. And, and listen, I came from a Pentecostal background, so all we ever talked about was the devil. That's all we ever talked about. Now I'm going to rebuke the devil. Re listen, you can rebuke the devil all day long, or you could just believe that this worked. Now, now if we, verse 8, now if we died with Christ, uh, no, 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 verse 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin, okay? Now, if we died with Christ, and that verse 7, I'm going to let y'all go home and chew on that bad boy, okay? Anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Take that home with you. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. Amazing. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he, listen, listen, listen. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive in God in Christ Jesus. Here's salvation. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law, you're under grace. <laughs> One more, last, last time. Sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, you're now under grace. Remember the, tier, remember the thing I talked about, okay? Flowing down. So, so how, how do we reconcile this? What, what is salvation? What is salvation? Salvation is freedom from oppression. Freedom from what oppression? Freedom from the formless oppression of not knowing who you are. Freedom from I am not into I am. Freedom from a fallen identity and mindset and works-based stuff to life under grace, life under justification, life under covenant. 
And that's what it is. When you say yes to Jesus, you're not reconciling yourself. You've been reconciled. When you say yes to Jesus, you're choosing to live in an identity that knows and lives like it has actually been reconciled. This is what salvation is. So when my little sister said yes to Jesus and she was saved, I got to move this out of my way. When Jesus said, uh, when she said yes to Jesus and she was saved, she in that point wasn't putting Jesus back on the cross and then being reconciled again. No, she was saying yes to living a life of knowing that she's been reconciled, therefore dead to sin, therefore alive in Christ, therefore not reigning under sin's rule, but reigning under grace's rule. So we baptize people, not because when they come out of the water, suddenly they're going to go to heaven one day. Sure, amazing, great. But we baptize people so that they can have a moment that they look back to and say, that which I thought I was not and I was living in an illusion over has been buried with Christ. And when I come out of the water, every drip of water falling off of me is a work that is falling off of me so that what's left is who I really am in Christ. This is why we do this. This is why after that, the Holy Spirit comes in and he wraps himself. Actually, the, the, the uh, word for spirit is, fem- is feminine. So we could say she. Um, and all the early church fathers also said she. But don't want to mess with y'all too much. Y'all probably think it's a heretic to call it a she. And that's how much the Western church has placed males way above female in that even though the word for spirit is feminine 100% of the time, we call it heresy to call Holy Spirit her rather than he because we have a view that men are up here and women are down here. I don't want to make a statement politically, but that just tells you where we are, right? Okay, thank you. Amen. So, um, <laughs> so the Holy Spirit comes in, wraps the God love and desire arms around us and refuses to let us go. We call it being filled with the Holy Spirit, right? And it's not to make us bilingual so that we can go raise up uh, ministries so that we can have giant churches. It's not the point of the Holy Spirit. The point of the Holy Spirit is so that you can live convinced every single moment of your life of who you actually are. The Holy Spirit comes in and the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to remind you moment in and moment out that this is who you are, not that. And that's why when you sin, you feel conviction, not because you're going to be punished by God. That's the Holy Spirit saying, hey, 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 that's not who you are. And so we repent. What happens when we repent? We're not saying, God, I'm sorry, don't smite me. What is repent? Metanoia, changing how we think. So when we sin, when we act upon an impulse of not knowing who we are, Holy Spirit comes in and says, that's not who we are. So we repent by saying, you're exactly right. That isn't who I am. Do you you see, this is what exactly what this whole entire commentary I wrote, the reason I wrote it is because, like I said, there is more to this story than any of us ever thought was there, but we absolutely hoped was there. In our guts, we hoped that what we were given was not a set of rules that, brother, if we, if we don't keep these rules, we got to beg God to forgive us or we're going to be struck. No, it was God in his love for us has become everything that we thought we were or everything that we believe we were not so that he could convince us that we actually are what we thought we were not. Do you know, you know what I'm saying? 
And this is what we've been talking about for months, and now we're starting to build the house back. I hate the language, I hate deconstruction. I hate that word. That's not what we've been doing. We've been refining. I told somebody the other day, we haven't been deconstructing because the house is still intact, but we found mold in one of the walls. And when we found that mold, we mold, we tore the walls out and we're putting the walls back. But we did not destroy the house. We didn't deconstruct, we fixed the mold. We fixed what was making us sick in the house. Y'all with me? So, and I, that's what the world right now, that, that is a buzzword, deconstruction, deconstruction. De- people aren't deconstructing. I mean, some people, I guess, maybe are. But, but they're not. People are finding cracks in the foundation. And because when they go to somebody and say, wait a minute, I thought you said God was love, but then you also said this. The response is, you better fall in line or get out. You, do you know how many pastors I talk to? Pastors. I talked to that would kill to be able to go into the depths of what we've been talking about for months, but they know if they even get close to it, it will cost them their job on a daily basis. I've, I've, and, and not on a weekly basis, I should say. And this is the thing, is that what, what have we done? We've created a monopoly that keeps people in by way of fear, the problem is, as John says in 1 John, that perfect love cannot have fear attached to it because perfect love drives out fear. Fear of what? 1 John says, fear of punishment. Huh? Y'all got time for one more? Y'all got time for one more? If you don't, it's my, I got the mic, so yes. Last one. This is my last thing I want to say. 1 John, 1 John, 1 John. If this is your first day, then, uh, sorry, sorry, it's, 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 I'm going to take a minute. I'm going to take a minute. Okay? Okay. <clears throat> Jesus, uh, in 1 John, let me, let me go to, um, I think, chapter 4. Is that where I want to go? Yeah, chapter 4, verse 13. This is how we know that we live in him and he is in us. He's given us, given us of his spirit. Okay? Talked about that. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the cosmos, is the Greek word. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love of God, or God has for us. God is love. Check this out. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Confidence. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not or has not been made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, here we go, yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Huh? Right? This is John, not Josh. He says, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, how can they love God whom they have not seen? 
And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother or sister. Fear drives out. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears has not been made perfect in love. Fear is driven out by love because fear has to do with punishment, but love has to do with justification in life. So justification in life drive out the fear of punishment because there is no fear of punishment in justification in life. You know what I'm saying? That is, that's the gospel. That, that is, we're not trying to win people onto a team. We're trying to wake people up that something happened at the cross that didn't just affect the religious people. It affected the entire human race. And we've got the responsibility to make sure that we not only tell people about it, but we live it. How can you, John says, how can you say you love God, but hate a brother or sister? And that word hate is not just like darkness. Darkness has no ontology. It's a measure of light. Hate is nothing on its own without love. Hate is a measure of love. Right? Some of you are like, I don't know about that. You might one day. So love, love and hate are not against each other. Hate is a measure of love. If you don't love, you hate. Right? So what John is saying is, if you say that you love God, but you don't radically Agape, that means to prefer. If you say you love God, but you don't prefer a brother and sister, you don't really love God. Because God's love perfects you in that love so that you effervesce, the big word, that love. Right? But if you say you love God, but then I go to Olivia and I'm like, man, I just, I just can't stand Olivia. You know, like she, the eggs she makes sometimes are just like, you know, this is not how I like, but whatever. You know what I'm saying? Then what John is saying is, is you can't compartmentalize love. Either you love everybody that flows from Christ, or you don't love anybody at all. Because the human race, like I said, is connected at the head. Therefore, to love God is to love every single thing that flows from God, which is every single person on planet Earth. Right? To not love the finger of that body is to not love the body because you cannot separate the body, right? So I can't say I don't love Tim, but I do love God because Tim and God are connected as one where Christ is the head of the body, right? And so this is why the past year and a half has been such a struggle with the church is because our struggle has not been the issues. The issues have been a product of the fact that we don't actually love each other. And the reason that we don't actually love each other is, if I could be frank, we don't really love God. So if we could get the secret place back and the fire's burning, suddenly we're going to find the love in the secret place that's going to start to flow down to people that Jesus says, you, you say love people who love you. I'm telling you to love your enemies. It's going to start flowing down into all the people that we've never had love for as a consequence of rekindling the love that we have for God. And then suddenly, I would dare say, suddenly all the issues swirling around in our world will suddenly go away. Right? Because there's no fear in love. So insecurity, I, have, I struggle with insecurity my whole life. I don't have fear of letting you down if I've been perfected in love and you've been perfected in love and we're both operating in it. Because where there is love, there is no fear of being let down. You see what I'm saying? 
And this, this begins to create its own community, like I talked about last week. It begins to create its own community that's all centered on God, who John says is love. Not just God loves, not just God so loved, he did that, but God is love. John makes love God's identity, right? And so where we begin to love, we begin to bear the image of love, who is God. And as we bear the image of God, suddenly we find ourselves loving while, we, while they were still sinners, Christ died for us. Suddenly we find, pe- we find ourselves loving people that while they still hate us, we love them. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We start sharing the same love for people. So even our enemies, we start loving even if they never change from being our enemies. Not because we're making a decision to be good, but because we're finding our reflection again, which is the image of God, untainted by works, good or bad. So, I'm going to pray. I could talk about this for hours and hours and hours and hours, and we will. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but this is just, I mean, this is, this is monstrous. I, I mean, I cannot tell you. This is huge, and we're clawing our way back. And I know some of you over the past summer have had questions. I mean, we've talked about some of these. Some of you had questions, what does this mean, blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, what we're finding is as we get on the path, Yahweh's saying, let me tell you what this really is about. Well, what does reconciliation mean for salvation? Let me tell you what salvation really is. We're not talking about heaven or hell, okay? That's sure, one day, great. That's amazing. When you die, you'll be with Jesus. That's what Paul says, amazing. But the salvation that the early church was talking about was not when you die. Damon, Tom- I said this Tuesday. Damon Thompson says, if, if heaven or hell is the entire aim of salvation, Jesus isn't our Savior, death is. Right? Because you've got to die in order to be saved. But they, did not pre- they didn't have their heads chopped off and their bodies pulled apart by horses for something that was coming later. That was the Greek philosophers. Right? They got their arms pulled apart by looking at Romans who were terrified about losing their own dominance in the world, looking at them and saying, God's bringing a kingdom here and you can't stop it. That's what got them killed. That's what got Jesus killed. And that's what we're called to live in. That's what we're called to spread. You loving people and you loving yourself and you loving God, which produces loving yourself and loving other people, is not just for us to sit around and sing Kumbaya so we can go to heaven one day. It's so that his kingdom might come. His kingdom can only come by way of love because the identity of him and his kingdom is love. It can't come any other way. It cannot come by force. Right? Our, our, the churches we grew up in tried to bring his kingdom into the earth by force. We thought if we said it hard enough and we sweat long enough and we punch people and knock people out, fell out in spirit, you know, whatever, long enough, and I love that. That's great. I fell out in spirit many times. It's amazing. But we thought if we could just do that, his kingdom would come. And the kingdom is further away from those very places today than it was when they started. And it's because his kingdom's not coming by way of force. His kingdom's coming by way of peace, which is inherited by way of love, of the increase of his government and peace. Hand in hand, Isaiah says, there will be no end. This is the season we're about to go into, Christmas. I'm going to cry like a baby this whole season. This is what I do. You know what I'm saying? And it's because, can you imagine Jesus Christ, God, submitting himself to such a vulnerable place that his life is reliant on a teenager, Mary and Joseph, to feed him. 
Think about that. God, who created everything, got to such a vulnerable place that if Mary and Joseph decided, we're not going to feed this baby, he would have died. This story is not like anything we've ever believed. Why did Adam and Eve hide? Because they realized their nakedness. The other word in the Hebrew, well, there's multiple words, for nakedness is vulnerability. So Adam and Eve, because of the fall, became vulnerable. Because they realized they're vulnerable, they hide. Jesus, in order to fix the fall, first went through vulnerability, which caused them to hide, but he didn't hide in vulnerability. He matured in vulnerability to the point where he finished it. This, this story is not like what we thought. So let me pray, and we'll be done. Lord, I, I, uh, I, I just, you keep feet. you are the bread of life, no doubt about it. And we keep feeding and feeding and feeding on you week in and week out. And it is becoming in and of itself a, 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 it's becoming a way of life for us. It's becoming an identity. It's becoming exactly what it was always supposed to be. be. You, told the, you told the multitude, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And all I can say, what we've been doing for months now is eating your flesh and drinking your blood. Of course, metaphoric. But, but as the bread of life, we've just been consuming not just ideas that come from you, but the very core of who you, Jesus, Yeshua, the Christ, are. And in that, we're finding our image. The more we explore what your image looks like, suddenly we're finding what our image looks like because it reflects yours. And so, Yahweh, I thank you for that. I am so grateful for this place. I'm so grateful for a family where we can explore the dimensions of the depth of who you are without any fear of punishment for it. And so I pray that, that this message, that worship earlier, that the community this morning, all of it, would just flow throughout our week and be fuel on the fire of devotion. And, um, and we're, we're going to see your kingdom come. We're going to see your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We love you in your name. Amen.